This week's parsha is Kisisa. Kisisa means when you shall lift or you shall take a census. And it starts off uh, by describing the method of doing a census. Uh, how do you count the Jewish people? And it's an interesting way that they did it, and they would have every adult donate a certain amount of money for the upkeep of the temple. And then, instead of counting the people, they would count the coins, and that would be used as a proxy to figure out how many people there were. So, And this is a general idea we see elsewhere, that Jewish people are not counted. If you want to count people, you don't count we don't like the fact that people will go and count shoes because whenever you count something, you put limitations on it. It's a fixed quantity. It's this, and it's not more, and it's not less. The Jewish people, we're the eternal nation, and we are able to have impact beyond our limited numbers. Just like we're compared to the stars, and it's not possible for us to fathom a number of what, how many stars there are, so to the Jewish people, we don't want to affix a number on the humans, and therefore we use a proxy to count them. And this money would be used for, uh, for the upkeep of the temple and the mishkan. We've had the past two weeks talking about the mishkan, the various different vessels for it, and the various different clothing that we need for it. And in this week, in this week we continue that um, for the beginning part of the parsha. And then maybe the most shocking and troubling episode of the whole Torah happens also in this week's parasha. And certainly it's the, the defining event after the Exodus and after Sinai. So let, let's see what we have over here. We have, uh, when you count the Jewish people, each one of them gives a half a shekel. And you read the verses at the beginning of the parasha, and it talks about three different donations that are made, three different collections and Rashi tells us that one of them was for the uh, for the bases of the Mishkan. When we talk about the Mishkan, we have those vertical columns on the walls of the Mishkan, and at the bottom of each wooden column, there was a silver base in which the column uh, fit in. The money that they collected from the Jewish people, from all the Jewish people, was collected uh, from that. And there was voluntary gifts for, uh, for the, the rest of the construction of the tabernacle. And lastly, was for the annual covering of the communal responsibilities, the various upkeep of the temple. And to me, it's always interesting to know what are the things that are compulsory for everyone and what are the things that are only limited to whoever wants to donate. And to me, it's interesting that specifically the base of the Mishkan, the base of the tabernacle, is something that has to come from all the Jews. And I would surmise, perhaps, that something that is the foundation, that is the uh, the basis on which the Mishkan, which is emblematic of the Jewish people and what we represent, that should come from all the Jews. Everything else, maybe that could be from individuals, the more wealthy could have a higher representation in the rest of the matters of the Mishkan. Uh, the verse then goes on to tell us that there was another, or the Kior, which is sort of like a water spigot, in which the Kohanes, uh, the Kohanim, Aaron and his children, this was made out of copper, Aaron and his children would use to wash their hands and feet before they go into the mission to do any work. That was actually outside of the mission, outside of the tabernacle. Uh, and then two more things. We have the anointment oil, special uh, ingredients and a special formula that you're not allowed to recreate of various different spices that are put together and are, uh, are, are poured over the Kohanes, the Kohanim themselves, and the various vessels of the temple. And lastly, we're told about the incense, which is part of the... Uh, last week we saw that there was the incense altar that was built all the way at the uh, uh, in the in the actual... Uh, in the actual Mishkan, and now we're told of the various different spices that belonged uh, to make up the body of those of that offering. And it's interesting to note, Rashi points out on verse 34, you should take yourself the spices, this, the, uh, the nataf and the shecheles and the chelbona. 
So the chalbonal, this is a certain fragrance that actually has a foul smell. And the ktoras, the incense, that is always supposed to adorn the whole the whole region, the whole area. All of Jerusalem was able to smell the incense in the temple. And here we're told to have a foul-smelling ingredient thrown into the mix. And Rashi tells us a very important idea that we cannot disinclude, we cannot try to have the unity of the Jewish people without including the wicked. And this is a little counterintuitive. We think the wicked, well, those people, you know, they're sinners. Why do we need to deal with them? We have to hate them. And the truth is, no. As a nation, we are an eclectic myth. Some of us are more pious and more righteous than others. And it's important for us to realize that we're a team. We're together. The Jewish people together, united, that is what we're, you know, with our blemishes and with our flaws together, we're the ones who are uh, we're a nation, and we're a family. And sometimes you have a black sheep in the family, but you know what? He's still part of the family. There are sinners. Yes, they're sinners. And you know what? Hopefully they will repent, but they're still part of the Jewish family, and we do invoke them with this particular service in the Mishkan. And the last uh, two items here, before we get to the central episode of the Parsha, is we're going, uh, God tells, the Almighty tells Moshe to uh, hire Betzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Chur. He's the most wise and capable and gifted with every craft to be the architect of the tabernacle. And he's going to have an assistant, Ohaliyav, who is uh, going to be his right-hand man with all of the various uh, construction needed for these very intricate uh, vessels, etc. And, of course, they also make an announcement, whoever is has the wisdom in their heart should go and help and lend a hand towards helping, helping put together all these magnificent vessels. And verse 12 here tells us, and Hashem said to Moshe, Now you speak to the children of Israel, saying, However... You must observe my Shabbos, for it's assigned to me and you for your generation. So that I'm Hashem who makes you holy. So the juxtaposition of Shabbos to the building of the Mishkan tells us a very important idea. That everything that is needed to make the Mishkan and to run the temple are actually prohibited on Shabbos. The mitzvah of building the tabernacle, a resting place for God, is critical. We have to have that. It's a very important thing. It's a touch point of these two worlds, the spiritual world, the world of the soul, the world of God, if you will, and our world. That is what the Mishkan represents. However, however, Shabbos is this idea on even a higher level, perhaps, we could say. And therefore, Shabbos is also a touchpoint of these two worlds, and it supersedes that of the temple. And therefore, you cannot have the temple override the Shabbos uh, celebration and the Shabbos rest. And therefore, we have to rest on Shabbos and not do anything needed to build a temple, and thus we know the laws. Anything that is needed to build a temple is part of the 39 categories of work prohibited on Shabbos. And there's a deep idea over here. If you look at the verse 16, the children of Israel shall observe the Shabbos to make the Shabbos an eternal covenant for the generations. Eternal covenant, which is bris olam, a, 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 a bris, a covenant of olam, of a world. So, it's an interesting idea because this could be read uh, as an eternal covenant, the way it's most commonly translated, but it can also be read as a binding of worlds. We've spoken about in the past how the temple, what it really represents is a touch point of our world and God's world. We're doing physical things, we're having stakes, and we're you know, slaughtering animals and all that, and that is the physical iteration of what you would see with your physical eyes, but it's also a place where God says, I am going to rest over here. And that, indeed, 
is, like we said, that's the idea of Shabbos. Shabbos, we're told, and the Ramban does mention this, that, uh, that we have an extra soul. What does it mean to have an extra soul? Does it mean that normally during the week you have one soul and one body, and on Shabbos you have two souls and one body? No, that's not what it means. What it means is, is that our body that is usually in opposition and resistant to spiritual matters, the power of Shabbos is that our body, which is our erstwhile enemy in pursuit of spiritual greatness, now becomes an ally because now it is involved and it wants to sign on and it wants to participate in the mitzvah of Shabbos. And thus we have an extra soul, we have our regular soul that we always have, but our body is also like another soul because it too is interested in the mitzvah of Shabbos. Shabbos is able to create a touch point. It's your body and soul, which are normally in opposition. Your soul wants to do mitzvahs and your body wants to sin. Now on Shabbos, you both want to celebrate it together. And thus, these two worlds are being bound in a covenant. There's a bind of these two worlds. And uh, that obviously demonstrates the deep connection that Shabbos has with the temple, and thus we recognize that, and we uh, we memorialize that every Shabbos by uh, by invoking the temple with our observance of Shabbos. The the episode finishes here, Baini between me and the Jewish people. This is a a sign forever that six days Hashem created the heaven and earth, and the seventh day he ceased to work. Vayinafash. The word Vayinafash is sometimes learned by some of the commentaries mean, to mean that on the seventh day the world received a soul. It's almost as if the, the mundane that we experience during the week is mirrored by the mundane that the world had for the first six days of creation. On day seven, the world is given a spiritual infusion, and thus on our Shabbos, we recognize that, and we too withhold from the mundane and embrace the spiritual infusion of this world. The chapter ends that when the Almighty finished speaking to Moshe at Mount Sinai, he gave Moshe two tablets of testimony that are written with the finger of God. Moshe completed the 40 days of Sinai, and he has the greatest, uh, the greatest memorabilia, the greatest keepsake uh, in all of human history. It's two wooden stone tablets that have in it inscribed the Ten Commandments, and it's written by God. And we'll see a little bit later, these were super magical. They were able to read it from both sides. You're facing one side of the tablets, you could read it, turn it the other way around, you read it as well. The letters are floating. Some, some letters in Hebrew are, uh, have a hole in them. So like the, uh, the, the mem, uh, the mem sofit, for example, uh, it would have a part in the middle that has to be suspended. All that happened miraculously with these tablets. Now, chapter 32 tells of the great travesty and devastation of the golden calf. Now, I want to just reorient ourselves where we are here. We spent two and a half parshas, Teruma Tetzava and Hafti Sisa, talking about building a tabernacle, all the various vessels, all the vestments, the conditions, not to build it on Shabbos. Chronologically, that actually happened after Moshe got the tablets, and after he uh, went down and was devastated by what he saw, the Jewish people are worshipping the golden calf, we're going to read in in chapter 32. So when the verse tells us that after Moshe finished talking to God at Mount Sinai, that actually happened chronologically before everything we've read in the past two and a half weeks. Just important to keep that in mind. So verse 32, uh, chapter 32 begins, the people saw that Moshe had delayed in descending the mountain, and the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Rise up, make for us gods that will go before us, for this man Moshe, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. And the verse continues, Aaron 
goes and says, okay, seems to sign on board. And he tells everyone, give me your rings and give me your nose rings and your earrings and give me all that stuff. And everyone complies and they take it to him and he turns it into a molten calf, a golden calf. And they announce, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then Aaron says, let's make a huge celebration tomorrow. And the next day they make a celebration and bring sacrifices to the uh, the golden calf. That's how, if you read it quite simply. And of course, it's very problematic. How is it possible the Jewish people, and Aaron especially, uh, these are holy people who've experienced Sinai and, and they had prophecy and they just had the Exodus and they have a great leader in Moshe. And, and these are also the people that survived all the chaos that preceded all the vetting and all the winnowing the group down to the people that are most dedicated to the task of being the Jewish people, and yet they could sin and descend into such, um, such low levels uh, to actually make an idol and to worship it and to bring sacrifices to it, and Aaron to be complicit in this. It's very problematic. So I want to try to just decipher... Obviously, there's a lot of commentary on this, but just to like ask a bunch of questions here about uh, about what happened here. So, the people see that Moshe is delayed in descending the mountain. So, how is it possible for people to see that Moshe is delayed? How do you see a delay? Uh, you could you could recognize that there's a delay. Uh, also, how do you know that there is a delay? Why were they sure he was supposed to come back earlier? Uh, also, you look at uh, the Hebrew word, Vayar Ha'amki Boshesh Moshe Laredes. They see that Moshe is delayed, but the word that he uses is a very strange and unusual word. Uh, that Moshe is hesitating for, to come. So what's going on? So Rashi fills us in over here that uh, just the backstory here. Moshe told them that he would descend after 40 days within the first six hours of the day. So the first six hours, and that's when he's going to come back. So you can imagine, people had Mount Sinai, and they had the greatest experience that the humans have ever experienced. Ten Commandments, two of them from God, the rest from Moshe, all the things that we've read in previous parshas. And now Moshe's going up to heaven, he's disappearing into heaven, and he's getting the Torah, he's studying partner with God, and he's getting the Torah, and he's going to bring it back to us. So you can imagine the people were kind of antsy. Like, when is this? So they know, they're counting the days. It's day one, it's day two, it's day three, it's day four, etc. And day 40 comes, and it's the first six hours, that's what Moshe told us, and he's not there. And the mistake that they made is that they thought that the day that Moshe was going up to heaven actually counted as part of the 40. But Moshe said he'll be there for 40 days, not 40, 39 days and one half day, 40 full days, and therefore they made a miscalculation and they thought he was going to be there a day earlier than he actually arrived. Moreover, the Talmud tells us that the Satan, the Satan, he caused confusion and he made it dark and he showed them an image of Moshe in a casket in heaven. And he told them Six hours are here, and Moshe died, and they were convinced. And thus, this makes sense with the actual text of the, of the Torah, the word bo-shesh can actually be broken down to ba-shesh, the sixth hour has come, and Moshe had not arrived. Now there's an interesting note over here. The Talmud tells us, very famous teaching in the book of Baba Basra, page 16a, 
that there is a tri-headed monster that is dead set on making our life as humans miserable. One, of, one part of it is called the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is the force that tries to get a person to sin. And the second element of this axis of evil is the Satan. It's not the Satan that is used in common parlance. That Satan is some sort of counterweight to God. God does not have any counterweights. This Satan is an angel of God that God engineered for a specific task. And that task is, is once someone sins because of the Yetzirah, the Satan is going to invoke that sin. He's going to guard it, so to speak, and make it real, make it potent, make it powerful. And the third element of this three-headed monster is what's known as the Malachamaves, the angel of death, and he is the enforcer. He is the, he is the one who exacts the punishment that is due for someone who sins. When someone sins, they create a spiritual reality that has to be uh, that has to be paid for. And when you create a spiritual reality, you have to find a way to rectify it. And the way it's rectified is with another angel called the angel of death. Okay, so that's exhibit A. The Talmud in Shabbos tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, they consumed poison. They ingested poison. However, at Sinai, the people had the poison removed from them. Now, what's this poison? So if you remember all the way back in Genesis, we talked about the Yetzirah, where Adam became someone who knew good and evil, that both good and evil were internal motivators. Thus, the Yetzirah, it's a force from within. It's a, it's a desire that someone assumes is internal because these, even though it's not fundamental to their existence, but still it's a force from within that causes confusion and makes someone want sin. They're, they're poisoned because of this force. Now at Sinai, when they had prophecy with God, you cannot have prophecy with God while you have poison from within. So what this did is it removed the poison from within them. Thus, they essentially returned to the state of Adam before the sin. Adam before the sin also did not have a Yetzirah. What he did have in the form of the serpent is a force from without that is trying to convince them to sin. So too the Satan here. It's interesting. Talmud stresses that this is the Satan. This is not the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is not a force to try to get to the sin. It's only the Satan because they no longer have a Yetzirah, or at least temporarily they're not going to have a Yetzirah because that was expunged from them at Sinai. So what does he do? He convinces them that Moshe is dead and they come to the conclusion there's only one solution. We have to get a replacement. So this is important to note here. Uh, you read the verse plainly, and it seems to indicate that they were upset that Moshe was gone. And let's replace Moshe with a god. And that seems to imply that they viewed Moshe as a god, and thus he needs a godlike replacement. That's, again, one of the problems with reading the Torah without the oral Torah, written Torah without the oral Torah, is because you miss some nuances. So look at the verse 1 in chapter 32. And they, the people ganged up on Aaron, and they tell him, make us a God that will go before us, because this man Moshe who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So it's interesting. They don't just call him Moshe. They say Moshe Ha'ish, Moshe the man. It's important to stress, even though the people sinned, they never considered Moshe a god. Because and even they even say, it's stressed over here in the verse, Moshe Ha'ish, Moshe the man. 
And thus, when they're looking for replacement, they're not looking for replacement for God. It was only a replacement for Moshe. This is important to stress. And even though it's evident from the verse itself uh, that they didn't consider Moshe as a God, but a simple reading might have missed that. So what does Aaron do? Aaron tells them, Aaron seems to be one of the villains here, right? Aaron seems to be all on board. So first of all, Talmud tells us that there's some backstory here. There uh, was someone by the name of Chur. If you remember, a couple of weeks back, we had the Jewish people fighting Amalek, Moshe going onto to the top of the mountain, and he has Aaron on one side and Chur on the other side holding up his hands. And whenever his hands were aloft, the Jewish people were victorious in battle. So this Chur character, Talmud tells us, the book of Sanhedrin, there's a mob, and the mob, they're going crazy, they're going absolutely nuts, because they've been waiting with bated breath for day 40, and it's day 40, according to their miscalculation. It's after six hours, Moshe should be here, they see in the sky, they see an image that they find to be irrefutable and incontrovertible, the uh, beer of Moshe, and they need a replacement pronto. Chor tries to quell the mob, and they kill him. And then they turn their sights on Aaron. And Aaron sees the dead body of Chor, and he realizes that this mob is very dangerous, and it's important for them, you know, the Talmud actually does bring this out from verse number 5 here, that Aaron saw, what did he see? He saw the dead body of Hur lying before him, and he didn't want to be the next one to follow suit. So what did he do? He tells them, I want you to go to your house and get me your Rolexes from your closets from your safes and go to your wives and talk to them by giving them your gold jewelry and your your engagement ring and your earrings and your nose rings and pull out all your most expensive jewelry. And what Aaron had really intended was for that to maybe evoke a conversation. You know, if your husband comes and he's all frenzied and mad-eyed and he says, give me your engagement ring, I need it to make an idol or to make a place for promotion, you might say, you know, let's maybe, let's sleep over this. Let's, let, let's think about this. But what do they do? They're so frenzied and they're so committed to try to find a replacement for Moshe. And if this is what will do it, they, they just pull it off. And they remove the gold, re- the gold rings from the ears and from the noses and they bring it to Aaron. So Aaron has this huge pile of jewelry and his delay tactic has not worked. So what does he do? He takes all the jewelry and makes a fire and throws it into the fire. And there is a sorcerer in the crowd, uh, a bad actor, if you will, and he managed to get hold of a certain of a certain device that Moshe had used. If you remember, when they left Egypt, Moshe took the bones of Joseph with him. Joseph made up everyone swear before he died that when when they leave Egypt, don't forget him in Egypt. Take his bones with. Well, how did Moshe get his bones? His bones were buried under in the Nile. So Moshe took a special uh, piece of paper or piece of metal and wrote on it, Alei Shar, Arise Ox, because Joseph is uh, compared to an ox in several places, and he throws it into the Nile, and the box, the casket containing the bones of Joseph, arises. This bad sorcerer, this bad actor, he actually goes and retrieves this very powerful spiritual device that Moshe uses, and he pockets it. And now, Aaron drops all the gold into the fire. He takes this device and throws it into the fire. He throws it into the fire. Arise, O ox! And what jumps out of the fire? 
the golden calf. And now the place is in an absolute frenzy. They see some magic. They didn't realize that this was some sort of magic that this bad actor had done. And they go crazy. And some of them even resort to idolatry. And of course, this is an absolute travesty. And Aaron is trying to manage the mob. And he tells them, I have an idea. We have to celebrate this. And he says, let's make a huge celebration for God tomorrow. So again, in verse 5, it's clear that Aaron is making a celebration for God. No one, not even when Aaron was being a little bit uh, misleading for the people, he still said this is a, this is a, uh, a festival for Hashem tomorrow. Obviously, you wait on the morrow, maybe people will be a little bit more cool-headed. But in verse 6, we see the people wake up early in the morning and they uh, decide to really go ahead with this. They don't sleep in. Moshe, Aaron figured maybe they'll sleep in a little bit. And by that, by the time they wake up, uh, Moshe will be back. But they're not having a little bit of it. They wake up early and things really devolve. They sit and they eat and they drink and they start to revel. Whenever it says the word letzache, to revel, it's a reference for very severe sins. Uh, flash forward to verse 7 here, and this is God and Moshe. Moshe is told by God, go down to the Jewish people. The people became corrupted. They went awry, and they made a golden calf, and they prostrated themselves before, and they bowed down to it, and they committed some degree of idolatry. And then he tells in verse 8, I see this nation, and behold, they're a stiff-necked people, and now I'm going to destroy them, and I'll make you into a new nation. I'm going to start from scratch. I'm going to cut my losses, kill the Jewish people, I'm done with them, I'm fed up with them, I'm sick and tired of them, I'm going to start scratch from you. So I want to just, um, I want to just, for a second... I want to just look back at the sin itself. Because you read it, like we said, you read it simply, it seems like an entire nation, they all rise up to do idolatry. So first of all, we establish it's not idolatry. Also, Aaron, in the aftermath, we see Aaron does not get punished. Thus, Aaron's role was, not, he was not a leader of this movement, clearly. Also, if you look at the uh, Rashi, Rashi uh, describes, Rashi points out something very critical here. In verse 4, when the, uh, when the golden calf is there, they said, this is your, your God, O, uh, this is your God, O Israel. So this is not people saying this is our God. People saying this, people saying this is your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. So, and this seems to be improper usage. If it's the people themselves, they, then they should be saying, this is our God who took us out of the land of Egypt. How come the, he uses a word to describe other people as if they're outsiders? Rashi says that when the Jewish people left Egypt, there's a whole bunch of non-Jews that joined the fray, known as the mixed multitude, the Erev Rav. And the only people that resorted to idolatry were the ones that had had some family history with idolatry, namely the mixed multitude. So it's interesting to note, none of the Jews actually committed idolatry. It was only, well, none of the biological Jews had committed idolatry. It was only the ones that maybe their condition was a little bit iffy, so to speak. Additionally, there's going to be a plague that's going to result from this golden calf sin and 3,000 people are going to die. And these 3,000 people are the ones that participated. But how many people are there? There's 600,000. So that's less than 1% of the people participated, yet the Torah presents this as, as, if, as if the whole nation participated. So of course, if any segment of the Jewish people Sin, we all suffer. We all suffer. And that's an important general idea to realize that we're treated as a nation. And therefore, even if there's a small part of us that have a tremendous 
sin, it affects all of us, and it's even portrayed as if all of us participated, but for us, kind of in hindsight, it's important to realize this was a small segment of the people. Now, God says, I want to destroy them. Now, what rationale does the Almighty say it makes it worthy of them being destroyed? So verse 8 tells us, Hashem says to Moshe, I see this nation, and behold, they're stiff-necked people. It's really interesting to stress that the idolatry or the, maybe not the, the actual idolatry, but the symbolic idolatry, all those theological problems with this story are terrible. But the thing that pushes them over the board is their character. In this story, they displayed a negative character that's most often associated with the Jewish people, or very frequently associated with the Jewish people, that we're stubborn, we're stiff-necked. It's hard for us to be motivated, to be inspired. And it's really interesting to note that is more of a reason for us to be destroyed than our sin of idolatry. And perhaps that is more fundamental to who we are. Someone sins. Well, what happens when you sin? You Hopefully you'll feel bad afterwards and you'll repent. And you know what? The sin is absolved. But a sin is an action. Character is who a person is. And to change who you are is much more difficult than to change what you did. Because your action is not necessarily reflective of who you are at all times. Maybe you were motivated, you were... You were really nervous, Moshe's not there, it was six hours, you acted out of character. But your character itself, that's much more reason for your destruction because that's really associated with who you are and it's a problem that's going to last. And we see this even today. I know in my business of teaching Torah, it's hard. Jews are resistant. They're stubborn people. They're stiff-necked. It's very hard to get Jews today, well, Jews, I guess, of any time, to be agreeable and accepting and to commit themselves to Torah and to Torah study and to Torah observance. It's very hard. And if, if someone were, were to go and to try to teach the Gentiles, they'll have a lot more success. Do you know why? The Gentiles are not stiff-necked. They're willing to hear what you have to say. They're interested and they're willing to commit themselves. How is that possible? We're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is our, the, the character flaw of our people is that we're stubborn. Now, I, I do think that this could be used in very positive senses. You know, I would say, just as a secular example, a great entrepreneur is not someone that's necessarily the most gifted or the most clever. It's someone who's maybe the most persistent or the most committed, because any great idea has a development. It doesn't just, it's not born, it's, it's, it's developed over time. And you know what happens? You hit bumps in the road. And what happens when you hit bumps in the road? Well, it depends. If you're someone who is not stubborn, you're not stiff-necked, you might be disenchanted, and you might not finish the job. And you know what? Maybe your idea was even better. And maybe you were more gifted, but you know what? You weren't committed. You didn't finish what you started. You weren't stubborn. To do something great, to change the world, you have to be stubborn because the larger the mission and the project, the more pitfalls you're going to face along the way. And thus, in order to accomplish anything great, you have to be stiff-necked. And that's why maybe we could suggest Jewish people are overrepresented in every area of excellence because maybe every area of excellence depends upon a certain modicum of stubbornness, of stiff neck, of being committed, of not willing to listen to the signals. And you know what? Sometimes that's a very powerful idea. You look at Abraham. What did Abraham do? He said, I have an idea that's the most radical idea and I have evidence to prove it and the whole world says I'm crazy and they want to throw me into a pit and kill me. I don't care. I'm going ahead with this anyhow. That's stiff-necked. And that's stiff-necked and that created our religion and all the other religions and changed the world. 
Where did that come from? It came from his stiff-necked quality. And he gave it to us. Let's change the world and let's be committed to do it. And let's try to use our stiff-necked for the positive sense. But it's also our potential downfall. The Almighty tells Moshe, these people are displaying this once again. They, they have a certain degree of stubbornness. Maybe they're unwilling to let go of their idolatrous relationships that they have with, with idolaters in Egypt, perhaps. And that's, they're stubborn to relinquish that and not willing to commit themselves to a new way of life. And therefore, that is, their character is what is going to be the reason, the rationale for me to kill them. And Moshe responds with one of the most fascinating sections you'll read in the Torah, how Moshe intercedes and prays on behalf of the Jewish people. So first thing he tells them, tells the Almighty in verse 11, is 11 and 12, well, 11 says, well, don't kill them. You took us out of the land of Egypt. You're, you're committed to us. And then he says like this, verse 12, why should Egypt say that God took them out with evil intent just to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the Jewish from 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 around from 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 the face of the earth. Moshe is telling God, you know what people are gonna say? You took them out of the land of Egypt with all the miracles, and then a couple of weeks later you killed them all. And that is going to be a blemish on, on, on the way people look at you. People people are gonna say, like this 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 is called a chilu Hashem, this is a desecration of God. People say, Well, how does God behave like that? Uh, that's number one. Number two, he invokes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were committed to you, and these are their children. And you know what? When God tells Moshe, you are going to be the father of the next Jewish people, well, we already have fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Rashi here says something fantastic here. You want to, Moshe's telling God, so to speak, we have the Jewish people who have these three legs of the stool that hold us up. It's a, it's a tripod. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our foundations. And if you have a shaky foundation, then obviously you're less likely to be prosperous and to flourish. But says Moshe to God, if a nation that is based upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three legs to the chair... If that cannot withstand these bumps in the road, how will the theoretical nation that's going to come from me, that's going to have only one stand, only one leg to stand on, how is that going to last? If it won't last now, it won't last with me, certainly. Interestingly, he does compare the Jewish nation to a chair. I would say just parenthetically, a chair is something that someone sits on. Well, who sits on the chair of the Jewish people? Of course, that's a reference to God. We're the ones who are presenting God to the world. We're God's ambassadors, and we're the ones who are committed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's time to the message of bringing God into the world. He does invoke, Moshe does, the commitments that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Almighty relents and says, I am no longer going to do the evil. I'm not going to destroy the people. And Moshe continues. He goes down the mountain. He still has those two tablets and strife from both sides. It's God's handiwork. The script is the script of God engraved in the tablets. And who's waiting for Moshe at the bottom of the mountain? Of course, that's Joshua. Again, parenthetically, Joshua is the paragon of a student, of a disciple. When the entire nation went to sign it at the foot of the mountain. It was Joshua, it was Moshe, it was the whole people. And then what happened? After the momentous morning of the Ten Commandments and the Sinai experience, Moshe goes up to heaven, and the whole people go back to their affairs. We're waiting out the 40 days for Moshe to come back. What does Joshua do? Joshua pitches his tent at the foot of the mountain. And Joshua says like this, I don't want to leave the mountain. This is a mountain of inspiration. This is where my teacher is. This is where we got the Torah. I'm not leaving, firstly. But additionally, what, what Joshua is saying is that the second Moshe comes back down, I want to be there right. I don't want to miss a second. I don't wait for Moshe to come back to the camp 
with his messages. Moshe is coming back with Torah. I want to hear it, and I don't want to miss a single solitary second. Moshe and Joshua have a conversation, and they, they, they hear all the cries and all the chaos in the camp. Is it a sign of war? Is it a sign of weakness? Is it a sign? No. Moshe says, no, it's a sign of distress. There's, there's chaos going on. They walk towards the camp together. They see the calf. They see the dancing. Moshe gets angry. He takes the tablets. He shatters them on the floor. He takes the golden calf. He grinds it into a powder. And he gives the Jews to drink. And the ones that committed the idolatry died. He berates Aaron. What do you do? Aaron says, well, it wasn't... This was not my intention, of course. And it's interesting just to stop over here. All the way to the end of the Torah, the last event that happens in the Torah is the is the eulogy of Moshe. The Torah gives a eulogy for Moshe. And Rashi there is telling us what every every word means, and the very last thing that the Torah describes is that Moshe did great wonders before the eyes of all of Israel. So what is this event that Moshe did in front of everyone, in front of all the Jewish people? So Rashi says that he took the tablets and he crushed them on the floor. And it's interesting, you know, if you had to make a list, a hierarchy, top ten list, the ten greatest accomplishments of Moshe, you don't imagine most people would include breaking the tablets as one of the top ten, and certainly not the highest one. Took us out of Egypt, split the sea, uh, engineered the Exodus, gave us the Torah, hit, you know, brought water out of the rock. There's a lot of very impressive accomplishments of Moshe. We wouldn't necessarily naturally put breaking the tablets on top of that list. But I think there's a deep lesson here. Moshe is the paramount leader of the people. He is the greatest leader that anyone has ever had, and certainly Jewish people ever have ever had. What is a leader? A leader is someone who minimizes his personal identity for the betterment of the collective identity, i.e. the Jewish people. We're told, I mentioned this previously, that Moshe was equal to all 600,000 of the Jewish people. What that means is that Moshe incorporated within himself the entirety of the Jewish people. When is this evident more than any other time in history that Moshe is willing to compromise on his own personal greatness in favor of the Jewish people? That is when Moshe takes the tablets given to him by God. Think about that. God gave him the tablets? And Moshe says... I'm going to take what would have been my greatest legacy to bring heavenly tablets from the heavens to the earth and I'm going to crush them. Why? Because the Jewish people will suffer more if I don't crush them than if I do. And they'll have a chance to save the people, to bring them out of the depths of sin and despair and to bring them back to a high level. But that is a prerequisite of that. That is contingent upon me taking the tablets and smashing them to smithereens. And Moshe did that, and thus it's his greatest accomplishment because it's his greatest manifestation of the quality of his leadership. Moshe makes a rallying cry. He says, who is to Hashem joined with me? All the Levites who never participated in the sin, they come, they point out all the people that participated in the idolatry, they slay them. It's almost as if they're cutting out the cancerous elements of the Jewish people. Someone, God forbid, has cancer. Well, what does that mean? It means there's a part of you that is trying to kill the rest of you. Well, what do you do? You take a knife and you cut out that horrible element. And that's not fun. It's not fun to undergo surgery. It's not fun to cut out a part of you. But you know what? If that part of you is harming the entirety of you, that's the appropriate thing to do. The Levites, they gird their swords and they do what is proper to save the Jewish people. Moshe again reinvokes the prayer. He is trying to recapture some of the greatness the Jewish people lost with their sin. He tells the people, I'm going to 
uh, go talk to God, see if I could get him to atone for your sin, even though God had committed to not destroy the people. But the fact that we exist, that's not our legacy. That's not our destiny. Our destiny is not to be a nation that survives. It's to be God's nation. God could say, I'm washing my hands, so to speak, from these people. I won't kill them. I won't destroy them. But I'm not interested in them. Let them just exist on their own. Moshe, wants to, Moshe says, no, I'm going to fight to try to say, we could save the people. We killed out the rogue elements. Let's try to start this again. Moshe tells God, verse 31. I implore, these people have committed a grievous sin and made themselves for themselves a God of gold. And now, if you were to forgive, forgive their sin, great. If not, erase me from the book that you have written. Moshe is saying, I am part of the people. I didn't sin. I was with you the whole time. But if you want to take them out, if you want to lower their spiritual stature, you're going to have to exorcise me from the Torah. Why? Because I'm with them. If you want to get... The, what, what is the Torah? The Torah is where God gives us his brain, so to speak. Where he gives us in the... It's, it's the will of God. It's given to us lowly humans, but not all humans given to the Jewish people. We had a few weeks ago that God tells the Jewish people, you have the Torah, now you have to build for me a mishkan. You have to build for me a, tab- a tabernacle. Why? We gave the example. So a king who gives his daughter off to marriage, but he says, build for me a guest house so I could be with you. When God gave us the Torah, he gave us his daughter, so to speak. What is God saying now? I'm not going to kill them, but I'm taking my daughter back. I.e., the relationship that was fostered, the relationship that has the influence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the close relationship that is embodied in the Torah, that I don't want to give them. Moshe says, you know what? If you're not going to give them the Torah, take me out of the Torah as well, because I'm with them. And initially, Hashem is not so agreeable to this. Uh, he tells Moshe, you know what, you'll still go into the land of Egypt, the land of Israel, I'm sorry, you'll still go into the land of Israel, but I'm going to send an angel, I'm not going to do it myself. Uh, people are very disappointed with this. They're still going to go to Israel, I guess that's good, but to go to Israel without God, it's not what they wanted. And Moshe does a few very severe representations of the degradation. They have a taste of the jewelry. They start mourning. The people are doing a degree of repentance on their own merit. Moshe takes the tent, his own personal tent, where he would talk to God and removes it from the people. People are no longer worthy of having God in their midst. And Moshe has yet another prayer where he is trying to once again get the people to have, uh, uh, get God to show favor to the Jewish people and to reaccept them as their nation. And we have what's maybe the most, one of the, some of the most famous verses in the Torah. Uh, Moshe tells God, show me your ways and that I may know. And of course, you open up the very first page of Maimonides, he gets into very, interesting and important and perhaps a conversation that is ripe for misunderstanding. What's going on here? What's Moshe doing? What's Moshe talking to God? Show me your face. Let me know your ways. Uh, this is a episode that can be misunderstood. It's, it does seem to be anthropomorphizing God. God says, you can't see my face because you'll do, if you do that, you'll die. But you can see my back. What does that mean? Check out the Rambam over there. And then it seems that there is a degree of repentance. And once again, God is warming up to the Jewish people again. He tells Moshe, we're going to make a second set of tablets. The second tab- set of tablets are man-made. Moshe's going to make them. It's still not God's tablets. It's Moshe's tablets. But God is supporting it. So this seems to be somewhat of a reconciliation. And then God 
uh, also shows him the power prayers, these 13 attributes of mercy, prayers that are never uh, that are never rejected. And these, of course, if you open up any Yom Kippur prayer book, you see this again and again, of course, the prayers leading up to the 13, uh, the, the day of Yom Kippur, the, the days of, of all the high holidays. We invoke this again and again. So in a weird way, we did benefit uh, from this episode because we got a special treat here that we got to know the magical prayers that always are answered. So Moshe does the prayer, and there seems to be a degree, like we said, of reconciliation. Read verse 10 over here in chapter 34. Behold, I seal a covenant before your entire people. I shall make distinctions such as never been created in the, in the entire world and among all the nations. And the entire people among whom you are will see the work of Hashem, which is awesome, that I am about to do with you. This is just an amazing idea. Like, this is a turnover. We, God initially wanted to destroy us, I'm not going to destroy you. But slowly, Moshe is helping us to recapture a level. And finally, God says, I'm going to be amongst you, and I'm going to do wonderful things. And he foretells that he's going to bring us into the land of Egypt. I'm sorry, bring us into the land of Israel. But we have to be very careful not to make the same mistake and not to dabble in idolatry of any sort. We have to have holidays, and um, Shabbos is again mentioned. And this seems to be like another commitment God's made, a brand new commitment God's making with us, and uh, as represented by the Ten Tablets. Moshe goes up yet a third time to talk to God, and after uh, another 40 days, he comes back down with the, the second set of tablets, and... The last story here, very interesting and informative story, episode, that when Moshe comes down from the heaven, the people are all steered to approach him because his face is radiant. His face, the Talmud tells us, is as bright as the sun. And Moshe didn't even notice that. No one was able to look at them. They're all terrified from him. There's an amazing Rashi here in verse 30. Uh, and it's a very emotional Rashi, I think, as well. Rashi says, Come and see how powerful is sin. Before the people sinned, what happened at Sinai? The vision of the holiness of God was like a fire on the top of the mountain before the eyes of all the Israel, and everyone's there, and they're all watching. And there's no, no problem. They have the highest levels of prophecy, no sweat. But once they sinned, even Moshe, the holy man Moshe, his face, they can't even look at him. Their degree of spiritual conception dropped so precipitously that while earlier they were able to experience God without trembling, and now they are trembling before Moshe. And of course, Moshe puts on a mask because people couldn't look at them like they couldn't look at the sun. And like we can't look at the sun. And whenever he would go and talk and talk to God to pray in the tent, he would take the mask off. But when he would talk to the Jewish people, he would put the mask on. That's the way the Parsha ends. A very fascinating Parsha with a lot of very critical lessons. Um, also one where we can make a lot of mistakes. I want to share with you before we finish over here, just an idea that I saw my grandfather writes here. And the idea of fear. You see the Jewish people, they're scared of Moshe. And Rashi tells us, why is there fear? Why are people afraid? It's because of sin. And my grandfather writes here that the psychologists... They can't figure out why. Why people? Everyone has. Everyone's scared of something. That, that's the human condition, you know. That when you were a kid, you're scared that maybe there's some monsters under your bed, or there's snakes coming after you. You get a little older, and it's night, and it's quiet, and you're scared. You're worried. Uh, maybe there's going to be someone's government going to break into your house, 
Or what if the government comes after you? What if there's terrorists? What if there's murderers? My grandfather says you ha- you have a you always go to your lock and double check your lock. And if you own a store, you got to check the window and make sure everything. You have to have security. All this we're all scared of things that may or may not be reasonable. You know, and ironically, the uh, the statisticians point out, the actuaries point out that you're much, 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 you're by orders of magnitude more likely to die from heart disease than from terrorists. But people are not scared of heart disease, they're scared of terrorists. It's irrational. It's not, where does this come from? This psychological oddity that people are, have so many fears. And here the Torah says, why are people scared? The real reason is, is because of sin. If someone embraces Torah, that brings them into a different realm of living that will remove the sin. Jewish people, they abandoned, they abandoned Torah to a certain degree. They made a sin. What the sin is, again, it's important to stress the sin was not a sin of idolatry or certainly not. Maybe there were some people that took it to the next step, but it wasn't initially about idolatry. For the masses, they were still able to be redeemed, but they sinned. And that sin brought with it a whole torrent of fear. 